Well, let's go to God once more in prayer before we go to his word. Let's pray. Father, our desire is that you would now speak to us. That we would hear directly from you with the help of your spirit through your word. Lord, give us understanding. And give us a desire to live it out. And we pray that you would do this for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. When's the last time that you forced yourself to do something you didn't want to do? Maybe it was this morning when that alarm went off about an hour earlier. But why'd you do it? Deep down, the reason we force ourselves to do things that we don't want to do is because there's something else we want more. Many of us might not want to get up and go to work or school tomorrow. And technically, no one's forcing us to go. But we get up. We go because we want all that the job or school provides. So what about obeying God? When it causes suffering. When obedience is simply hard. What do you do? Specifically, looking at our text this morning, thinking about the obedience of faith. Just ask, if I must die to myself in order to serve people who don't deserve it, why do it? If you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to Romans 15. Romans 15, where I think Paul is giving us a reason and a greater desire to serve one another in this way. And if you're using one of the church Bibles, you can find that on page 1008. 1008. If you're new to the Bible, the large bold numbers are the chapters. The smaller ones are the, the verses. And this morning we're looking at chapter 15, verses 1 through 13. 1 through 13. Now, as you're turning there, to set the context, Paul has summarized the good news about Jesus in chapters 1 through 11. Even though we've all rebelled against God and we deserve his wrath, Jesus has come to live a perfect life for us and to die on the cross for for the penalty of our sin. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ. And in Christ, we're freed from sin's tyranny. We're alive to God's Spirit adopted as his children, and promised eternal life in his presence. That's the Christian faith. But part of Paul's goal in writing this letter is to advance the obedience of faith. And so in chapters 12 through 15, he begins to describe true worship in the life of a Christian. It's a life that's lived in view of God's mercy. We offer our whole selves to him as a living sacrifice, which means using our spiritual gifts in the church to serve others, not ourselves. It means loving others, even our enemies, like Jesus has loved us. It means fulfilling our obligations to Jesus in every area of our lives. And then beginning in chapter 14, it means maintaining unity in the body of Christ. And that's not always easy in a diverse group of people. There are many disputable matters that that people of faith are going to disagree on. 
But they're disputable because they're not essential to the gospel or to faith-filled obedience to the gospel. And yet, some Christians are going to form convictions about these things. In the context of the Roman church here, the, the background of their Jewish law, or maybe the background of their pagan idolatry, has some people believing that eating meat is sin. And Paul refers to these people as the, the weaker brother or sister in the church. Not because they, they're, they're not mature Christians, but it's because they have a more sensitive conscience. And the, the stronger brother or sister has a strong conscience, which feels free in those very same matters. So how do these two groups of people maintain unity in the body of Christ? Well, in the first half of chapter 14, Paul tells the weak that they must not condemn the strong. God has accepted them. He's the Lord and judge. And then Paul addresses the strong and says, you must not look down on the weak and cause them to stumble and sin by the way that you use your freedom. In chapter 15, he, he starts off talking to the strong, but then he ends up addressing everyone because when it comes to life together in the church, we all must, here's his point, persevere in the hard work of loving one another for the sake of God's glory. Persevere in the hard work of loving one another for the sake of God's glory. And there are three ways that we find that we can do this in the text. First, serve each other. That's in verses 1 through 3. Serve each other. Second, live in harmony. That's in verses 4 through 6. Live in harmony. And third, fulfill his plan. Fulfill his plan. That's in verses 7 through 13. So persevere in the hard work of loving one another for the sake of God's glory by serving one another, living in harmony, and fulfilling his plan. So first, serve each other. Look at verse 1. Now we who are strong have an obligation to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not to please ourselves. Each one of us is to please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself. On the contrary, as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. People in general often look at strength as something to be used for their own advantage. So the strong in the world often are looking for some way to flex their muscles. And sadly, they're tempted to crush the weak. But the Bible makes strength an obligation to the weak. The strong had a responsibility to support them, to use their strength for the good of others. And so Paul is not just asking for people in the church to be nice to each other, but to actually alter their lifestyle to serve one another. In the church, when it comes to your freedom, it's not about you. You see, it's tempting for the, for the strong to think in this context, you know, about meat. This is good. Meat is good. It's a good thing that I should enjoy. It's not wrong. Therefore, I'm going to eat this steak. But Christian liberty isn't given for, is, is given for the glory of God and the good of others. So if it doesn't build up the body, even if we're just talking about meat and, and, and bring glory to God in that way, you are free not to eat it. That's what freedom's for. But if you must eat it, then maybe you're not actually free. 
And if you can't practice self-restraint for the good of others, how can you love your neighbor? You're actually dangerous to them. If the only time that you do good to others is when it's convenient for you, or if it already aligns up with with what you want, then guys, forget about your conscience. Think about how strong your love is. In the context, pleasing others means giving up your freedom in a way that aligns with their lifestyle. Of course, not a sinful lifestyle, but, but one that concerns a disputable matter. And for them, that means not eating meat because of the weaker conscience. And for you, it might mean not ordering a drink, or changing the channel, or simply keeping your opinions to yourself. But it will mean that if it means the other person's good. That's why we would not please ourselves. We're looking after their good. Not only, because not only has Christ died for them, to save them, but he's conforming them into his likeness. So why would we use our freedom to make them stumble? And in the process, hurt the unity of the church. Tearing down the very thing that Christ is building. So if you're here and you know yourself to be someone with a strong conscience, be careful with it. Only do what's useful for building others up. Get on mission with God's mission to protect the unity of the church. That's what this pleasing others is all about. Uh, We're not to please others because we ourselves don't matter. That's not what Paul's saying. Uh, That's a lie you should never believe. You, You do matter. And we don't want to please others out of a desire for their approval. In that case, we wouldn't be serving God, but we'd be serving people. No, our aim is to please the Lord. And that's why we seek to please others. We could spend the rest of the time applying this because this principle really can extend to every area of our lives. You know, the way we use our money or the way we use our time, the kind of relationships we build, where we choose to live. The kind of work we do. Well, all those things might not be wholly determined by others, but it's totally legitimate to ask in each case, how will this serve others? If that seems like a radical question for those different areas of your life that I just mentioned, well, it's, it's radical because we live in a world where it's so natural for everyone to please themselves. It's part of our basic sin problem. Ever since our first parents rebelled against God in the garden, we've all been primarily making life about us. Christians don't live to please themselves. We repent of that. No, we're we're seeking to please the one who died for us. Our faith in him breeds a desire then to serve others, to please them, and particularly the people that Christ died for. You know, those that he poured out his blood for and and purchased with his life. His spirit fills us. And it makes us want to care for the very people that represent him in the world. It's the church. And so we ought to get pleasure out of pleasing others. Guys, get more pleasure out of pleasing others than you do in in the pleasure of pleasing yourself. And for that to happen, you want to pray for a spirit of generosity. Not just material generosity, but a generosity of love, a generosity of service, a generosity of grace. 
In a culture of individualism, this kind of love is going to stand out as a powerful demonstration of the truth of the gospel. And it's a good check on your own relationship with God. And how far His grace has penetrated your own heart. Are you happy to lay down your rights for the sake of peace in the body? Now maybe you'd say, well, I'm not happy about it, but I'm willing I would say, that's good. But I think you should be happy. If you see that laying down your rights builds somebody up in Christ, you should be happy about that. And because you know that you're imitating Christ. Verse 3, For even Christ did not please himself. On the contrary, as is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Paul's quoting Psalm 69.9 here. And in that psalm, God's anointed king, David, is suffering at the hands of his enemies. And who are his enemies? They're God's enemies. The insults hurled at God are falling on David because he has so aligned himself with God's will, with God's name, that people are attacking him. He's consumed with zeal for God's house and the honor of God's name And he points us to God's true king, Jesus, who was literally God in the flesh. Jesus is king of kings and Lord of lords. And if anyone had the right to say, I came to be served, it was him. Yet Jesus didn't consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. But instead, he came Not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus was so consumed with zeal for God's house and for his glory that in obedience to the Father's will, he laid down his life on the cross. And the whole world's rebellion against God fell on him and he died, bringing eternal good to us. That's how he served us. And if Christ has done that for us, how can we not lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters? If we can't do that, then what evidence is there that we even know Christ or have his spirit dwelling within us? Jesus himself said, the world will know whether or not you're my disciples by your love for one another. Guys, your view of church membership must include this. If you join a church because of what you can get out of it, well, then you'll not only be disappointed with it, but you'll risk hurting it. Joining a church is about a commitment to Christ, which displays itself in a sacrificial love for His people to the glory of God. It's not about us. So if you want to do that, here's how you can follow Christ's example. Increase your knowledge of God and the gospel. So that your greatest desire is to please Him. And you'll find yourself persevering in the difficult job of serving His people. Because it fits within that greater desire to honor God's name. It won't be all about you, but about His people. And they're always going to be there in your heart every time one of your decisions is going to affect them. It's probably the way that most of us think about our our paychecks as parents. You know, it's not all there for us to spend on what we want. 
No, we, we think about our children's future. We, we think about their needs. We, we use our money to serve them. You know, it's not like we say, listen, your age may keep you from working, but that's not my fault. You know, I'm, I'm going to spend my money on me. Well, that's what we're supposed to do with our freedom concerning the weaker brother or sister. We're not supposed to tell them, look, okay, that may be your problem, but that's not my fault. You know, your conscience may keep you from doing this, but, but mine's good, so I'm, I'm going to enjoy it. No, we're in Christ. We're, we're bound together by His Spirit. And so, we live to please others. We serve one another. And if we do that, then there are going to be lots of ways in which our, our prioritizing of our relationships with one another might invite the scorn of the world around us, even family. But what we see here is if that happens, we're in good company. That's what zeal for God's house did to David and to Christ. So zeal for God's church is bound to come into conflict with the world and the devil and our own flesh. It's going to be hard. And so we must persevere in this hard but good work of serving one another in love in order that we might live in harmony with one another. And that's the second way to bring God glory in the church. Live in harmony. Look at verse 4. For whatever is written in the past was written for our instruction so that we may have hope through endurance and through the encouragement from the Scriptures. Now may the God who gives endurance and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another according to Christ Jesus so that you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with one mind and one voice. Paul simply goes on to tell them why he's quoting the Old Testament there in verse 3. It's because it was written for the church's instruction. Verse 4, so that we may have hope. Through endurance and through the encouragement from the scriptures. So you want hope? Read the Bible. But don't just read the Bible. Let it affect your mind and heart so that you're encouraged by the Bible. And with the strength that you receive from that encouragement, let it, let, let it give you endurance to do the hard things in life. And through endurance, you'll build hope. Which is the distinguishing mark of a Christian in a nihilistic world. But the only way to get that hope is through endurance. Hope is like the abiding joy that you experience on the very last mile of a marathon and when you're still feeling good about it. You know, as you're reaching the 26th mile and you still got energy in you and you're enjoying it and you can see the finish line and you've got the assurance, I'm going to finish. That, that feeling of joy in that moment, even while you're tired, that's hope. That assurance that you feel in that moment, even while you're tired, that's hope. But the only way to experience that while you're still in the race is by enduring many days of training. God builds our hope in trials. It doesn't come from 365 days of sunshine, but through seeing Him faithful in the dark days of suffering. But the only way to endure those dark days of suffering is by holding on to the promises of His Word. It's by going to the Scriptures and obeying the truth there that you read about, even when you don't feel it. Now, why do we need this hope? What does verse 5 say it's for? 
It's all for unity to the glory of God. This is a a, a prayer that's essentially asking for help to follow Christ's example from verse 3 and to obey His command. Now, we already talked about His example. So, what's His command that Paul's referring to here when he says, live in harmony according to Christ? Well, it's found in John 13, 34 through 35, where Jesus says, A new command I give to you. Love one another just as I have loved you. You must also love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. Later in John 17, 23, right before Jesus is going to the cross, he prays for us in the garden. Father, may they be made completely one So the world will know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. So here's the logic that Jesus was living with when he was talking to his disciples about the way they should love one another. Jesus wants the world to be able to look into the church and say, Do you see the way that people love one another there? For the way that they're living together in their life? For the harmony that they have? It's because they follow Jesus. Therefore, Jesus must be the truth from God. That's Jesus' logic. So, why is this prayer coming on the heels of all this talk about the weak and strong loving one another? Because it's hard and really important for the glory of God. Paul's asking the weak or the strong to, to bear with the weak. He's asking us to serve one another, to align our lives with one another to the glory of God. But that's hard. And so he's praying that God would grant them encouragement from the word. Give them endurance so that they might have hope in this. Guys, don't we know, like, trying to live at peace with other sinners in this world is hard. Even in the church. And it can be discouraging. And it's the same thing maybe at work or with your friends or even in your marriage. And in every case, you need encouragement and endurance to bear with one another. Being like Christ isn't easy. It's just not natural to our flesh. You know, we were were joking around at our community group this week about how, how great Romans 14 would be if it were only aimed at others. You know, but Paul just keeps coming after us. You know, it's about you and me. (laughs) Not condemning others in my heart where I clearly think they're wrong. Being okay with them for that when I'm convinced they're in sin. That's hard. The world doesn't do it. I mean, just look at social media. This is not natural. If we think people are wrong, we we are prone to condemn them. Or not exercising my freedom when there's no good reason for this other person's conscience to be bothered? I'm to suffer because they're wrong? That's hard. And yet we're obligated to bear with their weaknesses and seek to please others. And so we're going to need endurance. We need some hope. People's sin issues can be so frustrating. And sometimes it's not even necessarily their sin, but, but our obligation to meet their needs, which can be so tiring. But it could just be their quirks. 
You know, we, we've all got them. We've all got some quirks, and that doesn't make us always the easiest people to be around, does it? But we're a family. And we're called, and we promise to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so how much greater is this obligation when we understand that we haven't just made that promise, but it's the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ that has sealed it for us. As Holy Spirit binds us together. It's a strong, it's a great obligation. But it's not just an obligation. In the gospel, because of God's gracious love, it's also a new desire that we're given. So we endure the hard work of loving one another because through it we find that abiding joy in the certainty of what God has done. We get that hope. So if we look to the scriptures, see what we're called to do in our life together as Christians, and then we get encouragement from that and endure doing that, we're going to find hope in the midst of our life together. And it is so good. It is so good. It is like being on that last mile as you see the finish line, knowing that one day we're going to be enjoying this kind of fellowship for eternity around God's throne without sin. We're, we're going. We're going to finish. Because we can see it there in His Word. And so if we keep doing this now, we're only going to become more sure of that. And it's going to fill us up. That's why Paul's praying for God to grant these things. I don't know if you see that there. But what Paul's commanding the church, he's asking God to supply the church. This is a a beautiful truth to recognize about the Christian life. It's one of these realities that separates Christianity from other religions. What God demands, he supplies. That's, That's just something to hold on to when you're struggling. What God demands, he supplies. His grace is sufficient for us in our weakness. So if you find yourself having a hard time loving other people who aren't like you, well, you have the Spirit of Christ. And He didn't please Himself. He was even willing to go to the cross. So rely on His Spirit to help you. And get help. Do do that practically by doing the two things that Paul's doing in our text. Look to the Scriptures and pray. Those are the two central ministries for life in the church. The ministry of the word and prayer. And they play a crucial role in our unity. The hope we need, that is, the abiding joy in our present trials, comes from the the endurance, which comes through the encouragement that we get from God's word. And so when Paul prays for God to give us that encouragement and endurance, he's effectively praying for God's spirit to bless his word in the life of his people. So church, pray for the faithful preaching of God's word in this church that it might serve the unity of our body. That as it's opened each week and we gather here, that the Spirit would encourage us. And from that encouragement, we would gain endurance and hope so that we persevere in loving one another. A church that gathers under the spiritual influence of the word lives in harmony with one another, with one mind and one voice. Now, I was thinking about this, that the most literal way to, to, to apply these verses is to sing our faith together or to be led in corporate prayer. And the only way to do that is to gather like this under His Word. And so I want to encourage you to come back tonight and sing and pray 
God is glorified in these wonderful displays of unity here on Sundays. It's beautiful, and I praise God for it. I praise God for it because He does it. You know, when people talk about the music here, I I love the fact that they don't talk about the style of music or the people up front. Not that, like, I'm thankful for that too, you know, for the way they service. But, but, But they talk about the singing of the congregation. And where does that come from? The volume of voices in this room doesn't get turned up by a wave of feelings or circumstances, but by a steady current of grace, truth, and love from God. What happens here on Sundays is the work of God's Spirit. And so the praise that's being offered is being offered back to God with one another. It's one heart, one mind, one voice. And that's the new covenant community that God promised His Spirit would create in Ezekiel 36. The church is a new creation choir. Not just when we sing the faith, but when we live together in obedience to the faith. Our lives sort of proclaim or sing His grace through our loving unity, despite our differences. And the purpose for this kind of unity is clear. Verse 6, so that we may glorify God. Just practically speaking, if we don't have unity in the church, everything stops. If we're divided against one another, our gatherings might go on, but what would they be like? How would God use them? Yes, so much of what we emphasize here at Grace Harbor revolves around the preaching of the word, but really it all involves loving one another. Our ministry doesn't revolve around programs and services. Clearly, there's an emphasis on the centrality of the word, but the actual ministry consists in practical ways of loving one another. It's speaking the truth in love. It's serving one another, praying for one another, encouraging one another, bearing with one another's burdens and sorrows. It's a lot of together in Christ according to his word. So if we're not together, the ministry here really comes to a halt. Disunity disrupts our worship. It damages our walk with God and ruins our, our witness to others. But if we agree in Christ, then guys, we can persevere in loving unity. If you're here with us today and you're not a Christian or, or maybe you're just visiting, I, I really want to emphasize this. Grace Harbor's ministry starts with the preaching of God's word, but we understand that it's far from finished. You'll better understand the gospel and the ministry of this church if you, if you just get to know people here in our life together. So we want to invite you to do that. We would, we would ask you to just keep coming, come back tonight, um, hang around afterwards, maybe spend more time with, with the people that may have invited you here today. But our prayer is that you would be here and that you would see Jesus through our love for one another. And then join us in doing that. Which brings us to the, the final point, fulfill his plan. Fulfill his plan. Verse 7. Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted you to the glory of God. For I say that Christ became a servant of the circumcised on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises to the fathers, and so that Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles, and I will sing praise to your name. Again, it says, Rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples praise him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will appear. 
the one who rises to rule the Gentiles, the Gentiles will hope in him. Therefore, accept one another. This is the climatic verse that's wrapping up what Paul began back in chapter 14. It's Paul's basic plea to the local church in Rome here. Accept one another. And here's the basis of that plea. Christ accepted you. Christ is the basis for our church life together, and he's all over this passage. He's our Lord and makes us stand, back in chapter 14, verse 4. All good things come from him, chapter 14, verse 6. We live to him, give thanks to him, and belong to him, verses 7 and 8. We'll give an account to him, verse 9. He's died for us, verse 15. He's our king, verse 18. He's building God's church, verse 20. He's our example of service, chapter 15, verse 3. Therefore, accept one another as Christ accepted you, verse 7. Jesus is all over this passage because he's the basis of Paul's plea for loving unity. And here's the highest purpose of that plea. It's the glory of God among the nations. The result of your acceptance in Christ should be the acceptance of others. So that people from every nation will come to bring him praise. This has always been part of God's plan. It's why, verse 8, that Jesus made himself a servant of the circumcised. That is, the Jews. God made promises to Abraham that one day all the nations of the world would be blessed through him through his offspring. And so Jesus comes to fulfill that promise. He comes through Abraham's descendants in order to reconcile to God all who put their faith in him, including the Gentiles, so that they too could be grafted into God's family tree and glorify him for his mercy. Verse 9. And Paul appeals to Scripture four different times to prove that this has always been God's heart. This has always been his plan. First, in verse 9, he references David's desire to praise God among the Gentiles. Then, in verse 10, he quotes Moses calling on the Gentiles to rejoice along with God's people, Israel. Again, in verse 11, it's a command to all the nations to praise God. And then finally, in verse 12, he quotes Isaiah's prediction that the Messiah would win the confidence and praise of the nations as they put their hope in him. So, Paul appeals to every part of the Old Testament the writings, the law, and the prophets to show that the nations have always been on God's heart. Because God's desire since creation in Genesis 1 is that there would be a people created in His image that would fill the whole earth with His glory. That's always been God's desire. And so Christ came and died to purchase a bride made up from every nation that the whole earth might resound with God-centered praise. That we might live just like him. Paul wants this church to endure the difficulty of loving one another in the faith. Because their unity is key to the mission. And if they can see that, then their desire to bring God praise beyond their walls will help them persevere in the difficult work of loving one another. Because that love has has a missional effect. I'm not exactly sure how it happens. It might be because this, this place, because such a treasure that we want to invite others to come be a part of it. 
Or maybe when we experience God's grace through, through others' acceptance of us here, we're better, better able to, to love our, our community. It could be that our love for one another builds us up in the faith so much that, that we're strengthened to live out our faith and our lives become attractive. I assume that if we meet others' needs, it's a testimony to unbelieving friends and family. Or it could be that our lives together build us up in the gospel so much that we can't help but to preach the good news about Jesus. Certainly, Jesus says that others will see our love for one another and see the truth about him. But it's probably a combination of all these things. And regardless, the result of this focus on loving others inside the church is that people outside the church will hear the gospel and believe. That's a big part of why Paul's writing this letter. It's to be clear on the faith, yes. And on the obedience of faith. But it's because he wants this church in Rome to be a gospel partner in reaching the world for Christ. But if they're going to be gospel partners, they need to live it. What do we have to offer the world if we can't come together in the church like Paul's urging us to in these chapters? If we allow the non-essentials to divide us, our church will suffer and our witness to the community will suffer, but so will our, our ability to glorify God. Jesus, whose name is associated with the church, won't be given the honor he's due. That's why our church covenant is so important to our life together here. Our covenant just spells out the way that, that people from different backgrounds and cultures, experiences and opinions and personalities can all show off their loving unity in Christ. It's just by fulfilling that covenant. And as we do, we, we become the living proof of God's gracious power to save sinners in this world because it helps us live out the faith and to persevere in the difficult job of loving one another for the sake of God's glory. So accept one another. This is why Christ came. He did not please himself, but made himself a servant to the Jews in order that Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. So church, our life together is part of that goal. Fulfill his plan. Love one another. You need to love one another because you're the prize for which Christ died. He died in order that God might receive glory in us through our life together. Not as a bunch of individual Christians, but as a church. And it's so that others who aren't yet part of this union will come to bring God glory through their enjoyment of Him. To bring Him praise through their joy and peace in Him. Look at how Paul's, he's ending in verse 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. This prayer is how Paul's ending this entire section on the obedience of faith, which began back in chapter 12. Paul's about to get very personal with the church. He's going to be very practical about his plans to come to them and how they can help him preach the gospel where it has not yet been made known in Spain. But before he does that, 
It's one last prayer here for the God of hope to fill them with joy and peace as they believe in Him so that they might overflow with hope by the power of His Spirit. That hope is necessary for faith-filled obedience like Paul has called for. And notice that it's undergirded by joy and peace. Now, in light of recent commands here, this all might be pretty surprising. Paul's talked about using our gifts for others, not ourselves. He's talked about loving our enemies, conquering evil with good, submitting to government authority, denying ourselves fleshly pleasures. And then he just hammers the idea of putting a restraint on our personal freedom and putting others before ourselves. (laughs) So, I mean, after reading all that, it might seem like being a part of a church family is going to be a total killjoy. You know? But ironically and supernaturally, Paul believes that this is the way to joy and peace. This way of love is consistent with the gospel, it's consistent with Christ, which produces joy and peace through the Holy Spirit. And I think many of us, including myself, can say that there's no place I'd rather be than in the church. I'm so thankful that Grace Harbor has been life-giving to me. It has been so life-giving. Even when it has meant being confronted for my own imperfections, my own struggles and sin, even when it means suffering the shortcomings of others or, or bearing with one another in our burdens and sorrows. In fact, it's because of those things that I get to see more of the grace of God in my life. I see more of His love and patience, His power and His truth. And that blessing from God also comes with the joy of doing life together and sharing in the truth. It comes with the joy of repentance, the joy of reconciliation, the joy of sharing in the joy of others. Don't you love Sunday nights when you get to hear somebody's having a baby or they're getting engaged or got a new job or got to share the gospel? I just, I get that. It's singing the joys of the gospel together. It's the loving fellowship that we have here. The unity, the peace. That's life in a healthy church. And because of that, it means the joy of seeing others also come to experience through a newfound faith. Isn't that awesome? I mean, do you ever feel more alive than when you do at our baptism services? I just love it. And because of all that, God is glorified. There's no place I'd rather be. I'm happy to serve out the rest of my life here if the Lord wills it. Because I don't need anything more than what we've got here. This place has given me hope. Life isn't all about this world. And it's not about me. And this church has been a huge part of growing me in that truth. Because even though we're all very different, I praise God we have unity in Christ here. The gospel has kept us together through many difficult trials through the years. Even a couple of hard last couple of years. But praise the Lord, church. And we're still together. We're here this morning singing His praises with one mind and one voice. Let's pray. Oh God, we do praise you for this. We give you thanks. It's not because of us, Lord. We, we, we cannot pat ourselves on the back here. 
but because of Christ, because of what he's done for us, because of your spirit's work through your word, through our life together. Lord, we see it. And we give you praise. And Lord, we do pray that you would continue to do this work in us, that you might be glorified. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.